0: Welcome to the podcast of the New York Academy of Sciences, driving positive change through collective action in science and technology. This is the final episode in a three-part series that's looking at a huge and problematic disconnect between the way science is often perceived by the general public and the reality of what it actually is. And as we heard in previous episodes, these misconceptions often cross the line into fear and hostility, with people who benefit from scientific advances in almost every moment of their lives railing against science as something distant, scary, and probably evil. And as we've seen, these misconceptions are frequently born in the way science is often taught in grade school. Rote memorization of facts process that's about as far as you can get from the actual work of science, which is all about asking questions, doing experiments, and running towards the things we don't know. And this misunderstanding is exacerbated by the fact that research laboratories, where real science is being done, are often completely cut off from the neighborhoods and people that surround them. Here's Dr. Julie Nadell. She's genetics and education fellow for the American Society of Human Genetics and the National Human Genome Research Institute. She did her graduate studies at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, a world-renowned research institution located in a traditionally working-class neighborhood in the Bronx.
1: That was something that I saw was really lacking. Um, in the communities that surrounded Einstein um, I, I heard a number of teachers one who one of whom once referred it to like the Oz Emerald City they saw it they saw these beautiful glass buildings and they saw that it existed and it was in their neighborhood but had never been inside had no idea what happened there had no idea what was going on didn't know about all of the beautiful research that was happening and I think that that's something that we're really we have the potential to, turn into a beautiful opportunity. It's something that your community can take pride in is happening in their neighborhood.
0: And so here at the Academy, we wondered how can we bridge that divide? Is there a way that we can improve the way school children learn about science while at the same time encouraging scientists to come out of the lab and interact with the community at large? What we came up with is a mentorship program where we place early career scientists, mostly graduate students, as teachers in after-school programs for middle schoolers in communities that have the least access to quality science education. Here's Christian Breton, Director of Education here at the Academy.
2: For this program, graduate school students volunteer 10 to 12 weeks of going to an after-school site in an underserved neighborhood for an hour to hour and a half per week in pairs because we find that they work together in groups leading sessions that connect with the work that they're doing in the labs. One of the things that was very intentional about this program was working with middle school students because we find that's one uh, area where students start to either self-select or uh, be um, diverted to other fields. Uh, In terms of picking the schools that we work with, they have to be what are known as Title I schools. Those are schools that are largely determined by the amount of students that qualify for free and reduced lunch. Uh, we want to do the greatest good we can. So by pairing with uh, underserved schools, we think that we're going to be able to have the most impact.
0: Here's Dr. Mark Stewart of the State University of New York, one of the Academy's partners in this effort. Our
3: hope was that the graduate students would serve, by being young, uh, and a lot closer in age to some of the students that are walking the hallways, that they would be more interesting to the students first and foremost, and and the kids would gravitate to them.
0: It's a beautiful sounding idea, but its success hinged on some real gambles. First, the fact that after-school programs are optional extras, would a significant number of students actually sign up for extra science classes? And and part of the issue is that in the after-school
3: setting, we were were trying to give an educational activity when students could choose something else, like basketball or some other activity that might be more interesting to them or more fun for them. Even the parents were looking at a lot of this after-school time as just a, a babysitting or daycare type of Uh, service, so there was not the same kind of push to spend time in an educational activity, and we were looking to pull students in by making the activities as interesting as possible.
0: And assuming we could get the students, would we be able to get the mentors? Graduate School in the Sciences is no walk in the park. You're doing research, you're teaching, you're probably doing coursework. It's a brutal, round-the-clock schedule to begin with. So why would they want to add tutoring middle school students to all of that? And even if they were interested, in research fields, middle and late career scientists, called principal investigators, absolutely depend on their graduate students to do the grunt work that makes their experiments function. How is it going to be to ask the person who is both your professor and your boss, and upon whom your future in science largely depends, for time off to go hang out with kids? How do we do this, right? The way the graduate education works
3: is that you get some courses in fundamental science and you pair up with a research mentor to do a research project. Now, in order for me to get you out of the lab and into a middle school, I either have to sneak you out of the lab or get your thesis advisor to agree to let you out of the lab. In some cases, the thesis advisor raises uh, sort of bloody hell because the students not actually chained to the bench where they think they ought to be. And given this funding environment, I get that.
0: Here's Dr. Emily Rice, an astronomer at the College of Staten Island, talking about how doing outreach and community education was something she's always felt passionate about, but something she's always also felt like she's had to hide to some degree from her colleagues and others in the field.
1: I worked at the Griffith Observatory, worked at the California Science Center, Um, And those things I kind of kept to myself a little bit because I didn't want anybody to think that I was spending not enough time on research or that I wasn't serious about the research, that I wasn't serious about an academic position. Even in my current position, I don't share as much with my department and the people that are going to make my tenure decision all about the outreach that I do. And even I've gotten dinged on grants because of it, because people think, oh, this is too much outreach. You can't be doing enough science to, to deserve this funding for the science.
0: And so, when Dr. Megan Groom, the Academy's Senior Vice President for Education, was tasked with creating this mentorship program not long after she began working here, she approached the project with a decidedly measured view of its potential success.
1: I spent the first two weeks having to manage expectations with everybody here, and the funders and the the different people within the academy. And I said, listen, this is a really great idea. I'm going to have to kill it in about six months. No one is going to want to do this. I will will probably be able to talk 10 people into doing this for two or three days, and that is it. No one's going to want to do this.
0: But instead, we found that this idea of giving back by mentoring – really struck a chord with young scientists. And we
1: opened the application, and again, so only 10 people are going to want to do this. Only 10 people are going to want to do this. And that first day, we had 60-something applications. It was an overwhelming response, and I remember running over um, to the other person who was helping me with it and just saying, I think this is a fluke. I think this is a total fluke. And, um, and by the end of that year, we had 110 who had completed the program, and it was clear um, from the very little bit of marketing Marketing that we had done, that there was an incredible appetite to do this type of stuff from graduate students here in the New York City area. So from that point on, it was about not getting people, but designing the experience in a way that would maximize the benefit for the kids and maximize the benefit for the scientists um, who are usually in their you know 20s and 30s.
0: And very soon, Our mentors were doing a really wide range of interactive activities with these kids, many of whom had never done hands-on science before. Here's Mr. Breton, followed by Dr. Groom.
2: The curriculum for this program has ranged from uh, life sciences, where they're dissecting chicken legs or earthworms, to astronomy, which was uh, an open-source curriculum provided by NASA, to curriculum that mentors developed. After going through uh, the semester, we've had two different sets of mentors want to develop their own curriculum. One of them was on using the computer language Python to uh, code uh, classic video games. Uh, Another one was using uh, robotics uh, Lego kits to uh, play a game that was similar to sumo wrestling but with robots.
1: It's a very um, diverse group of kids um, that we work with who come from predominantly um, high poverty, urban and rural settings. And so to them, people like them don't do science. But then that scientist brings them to the university, introduces them to other of their scientist friends, brings in cool science stuff. You know, the just experience of having this really positive, um, good time doing math or understanding what coding is. You know, it takes this totally abstract idea and turns it into something that they could do and that they are doing.
0: And soon, the project was partnering with several universities to expand the program to students around the state and soon even around the world. So
2: uh, the program is now at six universities uh, SUNY Downstate in Brooklyn, Stony Brook on Long Island, the Center for Nanotech in Albany. Uh, SUNY IT in Utica, uh, the Environmental School of Science and Forestry in Syracuse, and Oswego, in Oswego. And we are currently awaiting uh, word from NSF about two other initiatives to expand to uh, universities in the tri-state area. We've been fortunate that we've had funding from the city government of Barcelona, so the after-school mentoring program is in its second year in Barcelona. Uh, We've done a variation of this program in Kuala Lumpur uh, where uh, a university there provided funding.
0: And interestingly, one of the most important lessons that the kids learn from this experience is not that scientists are super awesome, but rather that they're super normal. That science isn't a bunch of mysterious stuff done by superhumans in locked towers but rather an actual, fulfilling career choice that anyone can make if they're prepared to work hard enough. Here's Kenny Shotskis, a third year PhD candidate at Rutgers studying genetics of infectious disease. He's a veteran mentor with the Academy's program and now one of our education department's scientists in residence.
4: For me uh, personally, and I tell this to my students uh, a lot, I had I got a C in high school biology. So, and even though I got a C in high school biology, my high school teacher still uh, encouraged me to go into a career in scientific research. And if it really wasn't for that you know, that act of faith and that teacher mentoring me along the way, I never would have gone this way. You know, A lot of teachers, you know, you get a C in high school biology and that's it. You're, you're done. Um, you're never going to really go on and have career aspirations in the sciences. Um, but it was because of that mentorship of that one teacher, Dr. Susan Browerman at the Bronx High School of Science uh, that I got into research, and, and for me, it's extremely gratifying giving back about the same way. I can never ever repay her, but, so I feel you have to pay forward. And that's why I got involved.
0: Here's Dr. Jeannie Garbarino, Director of Scientific Outreach at the Rockefeller University here in New York, followed by Dr. Groom again.
1: It, you know, being a scientist is multifaceted. It's not just about getting A's on your calculus test. It is also important that you're creative and that you work hard and that you are responsible and that you have good ethics. And even if they don't want to become scientists, that's okay too because they'll always remember that they had these experiences with us and then, you know, they might be more more open to scientists. Then they'll have less of those stereotypical reactions when they think of a scientist or they think of science as being hard. And the very first thing that the scientists talk about with them just because it comes up is, oh, I don't, I don't know anything about that. I don't. Oh, that's a really good question. You know what, I'm gonna call my friend who studies something about that. And that science is essentially getting better at understanding what we don't know. And that every time you ask a question and answer it, it just basically opens a million other doors of things that you don't
0: know. And something we've seen over and over again, wherever this program is being done, is that as much as it opens up new doors for the children who are being mentored, it's an equally valuable experience for the mentors themselves. Here's Dr. Philip Ortiz, SUNY's Assistant Provost for STEM Education, followed by Dr. Groom.
5: And so, you know, you think about this program, not only does it have a really great effect on um, the children, the middle school kids, but it has a really great effect on the mentors, the graduate students who become uh, practicing, practicing STEMists. Regardless of whether you become a PI leading a lab or if you go into industry and you're working in a lab or if you go into public relations or, or teaching or whatever it is that you go into, these, the skills that you develop in mentoring are useful in all of those careers because essentially in all of those careers you're asked to be a leader uh, you're asked to be a, uh, a mentor of, of people around you and so the, those fundamental skills are really portable to many in many ways
1: and we've documented that really clearly that doing these types of um, teaching, mentoring, communication, it is a really good way to take these theoretical skills that you need to be a STEM professional, practice them, refine them, and actually come out on the other end with, with really good marketable skills that you can put on your resume.
0: And maybe the most important of these skills is the one we've been highlighting throughout this series, communication. How do you talk about your work in a way that's accurate, but also clear to someone who's not an expert in your field? Here's Brandon Murphy, Program Coordinator at SUNY's College of Environmental Science and Forestry, one of the mentor program's partner institutions.
4: The scientists aren't always good at communicating science. They're good at communicating science to other scientists, but you know, there, there's sometimes a breakdown when you're, they're communicating science to the public. and. Trying to explain things in a way that an eighth grade urban city school student can understand really gets you to think about what sort of assumptions you have uh, built into your thinking that maybe you need to break things down more or simplify. And I think that, that really builds a communication skills for, for communicating into the lay audience.
0: And learning this skill of breaking things down without dumbing them down is completely essential if the participating mentors have any interest in being successful teachers at any level. And if you're studying science rather than education, it's not something you're going to learn in your coursework. Here's Dr. W. Marcus Lambert of the Weill Cornell Graduate School of Medical Science, followed by Dr. Stewart. You take you know, the, the student
3: who's gonna end up in that professorship position, right? Have you ever formally given them a pedagogy course? Have you ever taught them how to teach? No, right? You throw them into this, this bucket of, you know, a medical school classroom or an undergraduate classroom and expect them to just be these perfect science communicators that actually get across, you know, their message, right? But you never give them opportunities to really uh, train them. I mean, you know, sometimes they're TA requirements, but it's really not sufficient. In our graduate school, there's a modest requirement for teaching. It's about 50 hours, and we can provide that in a variety of mechanisms. But the students who do the minimum 50 hours are not competitive for teaching positions at two and four year universities. So those students who identify at some point that they have an interest or want to explore that interest further need additional experience. And this program was one of the
0: most exciting ways for them to do it. And interestingly, the people who have successfully become STEM professionals are the ones who did respond well to the way they were taught, even if that was the kind of old-fashioned science education we've talked about, based on lectures and rote memorization. So sometimes the mentors, as much as the students, have to learn a whole new model of what science education can be. Here's Dr. Groom, followed by Mr. Murphy.
1: Um, Another struggle is that they don't necessarily have very good models of what Teaching looks like so. They've been lectured. They've done very well in traditional classrooms. Um, usually, they're very good at test taking. So, when they think about their teacher, they think about you know, pr- you know, their AP chemistry or physics class, which is taught in a lecture style. So, they they ne- they haven't necessarily been exposed to what good teaching really looks like, what inquiry-based teaching really looks like, what student-driven teaching looks like.
4: There's definitely some people who came in with the, the, the whole concept of I'm going to go in and I'm going to, to lecture versus, you know, I think it, it really has shifted the way they think about the whole idea of teaching in general um, from maybe what they're used to of somebody going up in the front of a room and lecturing to trying to do more active learning where, you know, the students are creating helping to create the knowledge as opposed to just absorb
0: it.
5: And here's Dr. Ortiz. I think that new faculty members have two really extraordinary days in their career. The the most exciting day of their career is the day before they give their first lecture because they are absolutely sure they're going to be the best STEM educator that the world has ever seen. And the second really memorable day of a new faculty member is the day before their second lecture because on that first day they realize they don't know the first thing about teaching. And so our thought was by placing them in the STEM mentoring program, we could start to teach them um, the fundamentals of pedagogy, the fundamentals of mentoring, the fundamentals of lesson planning, the fundamentals of differentiated instruction, the fundamentals of assessment, so that when they enter their faculty jobs, they have a really good sense of the challenges that lay ahead of them, but also some of the basic tools to uh, address those challenges.
0: But our mentors are getting more out of this than career skills. Many are finding that getting out of the isolation of research and into the community is deeply rewarding on many levels. Here's Dr. Mona Karami, a researcher at Texas A&M in Galveston and a former Academy STEM mentor.
6: I think it's more like self-rewarding moment for you to just enjoy it. Because my work is theoretical. So if you just always adhere, and I work more like this mathematics Modeling is just you just in your own, not necessarily sometimes even lab, but yourself just paper and pencil, and you have to prove something, just find like the model algorithm, something like that. You ended up being so isolated, so you just feel isolated. But if you go and then go see out there, the rest of the world see, especially when they're just young kids and you see the spark in their eyes and how energetic how they want even though they have not been exposed to like let's say anything even science related but if you give them a little bit and see the feedback they give you it's just um, I think it's just a rewarding moment just for your own self-contentment.
0: And for a few mentors this opportunity to teach is a gateway into their life's work. Here's another alum of the mentoring program Dr. Stephanie Kettison who started out as a neuroscience researcher but is now a full-time high school science teacher.
6: I was very busy at the bench, but unsure about the future of science research and funding. Uh, And I was looking at other options, but this was just something, I think, to make my life feel a little bit more full and also to give back to the community. Uh, It felt like sort of a social responsibility thing. And I had very little, no, I would say I had zero pedagogical (laughs) background or education. Um, But I was given good training sessions on this genetics curriculum that I actually taught to three different classrooms um, for the next... Uh, I, I did it for two semesters and a summer um, because I just loved it and I wanted to keep doing it in fact I love teaching so much almost after the first few days of teaching I watched in the classroom and I just realized that I had found my calling I fell completely head over heels in love with teaching and I would never have found it otherwise I don't think um, because the opportunity just never arose um, so after the first few days I was like I'm hooked this is what I want to do for the rest of my life I'm actually pretty good at this and I feel really connected to the students And so that's basically, the rest is history. So I've now been teaching for five years, uh, and I absolutely love it. So this experience was literally life-changing.
0: Here's Dr. Groom again.
6: We get emails every day,
1: a bunch a week of people thanking us. You know, people who write in. We had um, one guy who was um, an engineer from NYU. And he sent me a note. He said, you know, I'm teaching math with these kids and I am having so much fun. But when I walk into the classroom with them, they stand up and they clap and cheer never happens to an engineer. I mean, that never happens. No one, when we walk into a room, claps and cheers. I felt so good about that. And I was like, that, that that would be pretty amazing to know that you you are coming in here and that kids are so excited to learn about math that they're standing up and clapping and cheering. And, and I think that's, you know, one piece of the puzzle um, in terms of people really feeling that they're, they're, valued and that there's a place, um, there's a place for them um, in this, um, in all of this work.
0: And we'll end there. Thanks for listening to the podcast of the New York Academy of Sciences. This episode was written and produced by your host, David Hoffman, with the assistance of Carrie Kasten and administrative and scientific oversight by Dr. Megan Groom and Christian Breton. Special thanks to the other experts who appeared in it Dr. Julie Nadell of the American Society of Human Genetics and the National Human Genome Research Institute, Dr. Mark Stewart, Dr. Philip Ortiz, and Brandon Murphy of the State University of New York, Dr. Emily Rice of the College of Staten Island, Dr. Jeannie Garbarino of the Rockefeller University, Kenny Schotzkiss of Rutgers University, Dr. W. Marcus Lambert of the Wild Cornell Medical School, Dr. Mona Karami of Texas A&M, and Dr. Stephanie Kettison of Bard High School, Early College, Queens. For more information about this and other Academy events, as well as to listen to other podcasts, please visit www.nyas.org. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and follow us on social media, at NYASciences on Twitter, or the New York Academy of Sciences on Facebook and LinkedIn. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences, where brilliant minds come together to spark innovative solutions to global challenges.